scripture reading for today is from 1 John 3:11 through 24. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not with words or let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, friends. Happy to uh, be with you this morning, to gather with you. Uh, my name is Alexis. Let me fix this real fast. My name is Alexis. I'm one of the lead pastors here. Got to plant this church, like Dan said, back in 2019, uh, right before COVID. And then we went through COVID, and that was super fun on Zoom. But uh, just truly honored to be one of the spiritual mothers of this family. And it's an honor to be able to gather with you today and to teach from God's word. It's a true privilege. So I want to open in prayer and then we'll get started. Spirit, we ask that you would come and you would meet us here. Lord, I know that this text, as I have been sitting in it and meditating in it, has convicted my heart and has shown light in ways that have felt uncomfortable. And so I'm asking, Spirit, that you would hover over this gathering today. I pray in those areas like me where I felt conviction and those areas where we feel light is shining and we wanna flee from it, I pray, God, that we would open ourselves up to your merciful hand and your working in our lives. And I pray that we would trust and we'd receive from you your immeasurable love. I pray today that these people would know you love them so much you see them, you know their hurts, you know their pains, you know their joys, and I pray today they would feel safe with you as Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So throughout this series, we have been circling around two big themes in becoming a community of love. The first one is our relationship with Jesus, 
And the second one is our relationships with one another. So let's just briefly review the first, our relationship with Jesus. Up to this point, most of the teachings have focused largely on themes of knowing how we know God, the true marks and means of obedience and transformation toward and in God, and the cultivation of desire for God. And through several different facets, we have looked at and studied what it means to truly be a disciple of Jesus, to know him. How, we, how are we to be with him and to become like him? This morning, though, the text is dialing in specifically on our relationships with one another and the outward effects of them. We're going to look closely at what, a true marks, what are the true marks of a community of love practically are with one another. Jesus made it very clear that it is by our love for one another that the world will know we are his disciples. Love marks those who belong to the truth. Now, I find that interesting. It's love is what, is, is what defines us. It's not a list of rules. It's not do's and don'ts, but it is love. It seems that we often get this backwards, don't we? We think that by reading our Bibles every day, our neighbor is gonna somehow supernaturally see and experience the tangible love of Jesus. Or we think that by practicing Sabbath every Saturday or whatever day you practice Sabbath, our coworkers are gonna be like, wow, they really model love in a way that makes me want that same kind of love. Now, of course, you know, there is a prescribed way that Jesus has called us to live that brings ours and others highest flourishing, and it is attractive in some ways. Reading the scriptures, practicing Sabbath, prayer, silence and solitude, fasting are all important and necessary for our personal thriving. These practices also, of course, they do have an outward effect, but it is by our love for one another it is an integral and vital component of the mission of Jesus in this world. How we, the church, treat one another, how we care for one another, how we forgive one another and act for one another is what truly speaks to the world around us. We see and encounter so much in this life that goes against our beliefs, don't we? The way of Jesus is constantly being challenged. Choosing by faith to believe and practice his way with our money, with our sexuality, with our care, with our love for one another makes us a very different type of people, which means that there is a big responsibility for us to get this right. It matters. Look at verse 11. John opens our morning today by saying, for this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. So what sort of love is John talking about here? Jesus defines the highest form of love as seeking the highest flourishing of another at cost to oneself. Now we all know this isn't a definition that's based on a warm feeling or a desire of the flesh. It's based on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He gave his all for our highest flourishing. And he said to us, greater love has no man than this, but that he lay down his life for his friends. In our culture today, we struggle with this paradigm of love. Often it comes down to mutual fulfillment in the pursuit of pleasure, doesn't it? It's what can I get out of this? And further, this definition of love is incredibly difficult to comprehend in a culture that is saturated by individualism with an aversion to commitment, not to mention just straight up sin and the devil opposing it. But for Jesus, 
And for us, the church, love begins with and ends in laying the whole of our lives down for the other. So if love is to seek the highest flourishing of another at cost to ourselves, John this morning wants us to understand from the beginning that there are ways and works that can destroy this kind of love, this kind of biblically defined love that we are called to walk in as followers. Let's look at what destroys our love, jealousy, envy, hatred, unforgiveness, selfishness, conceit, or conceit's another word for pride. From our text, look at verse 12. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. You see, friends, jealousy and anger and envy and conceit were some of the drivers behind this first and very well-known murder at the beginning of the Bible. If you're new to this story, it's a tragic one. Cain and Abel were two brothers working the fields and keeping the flocks east of Eden outside of the garden. One day, Cain brings an offering to the Lord from the first fruits of his produce, and Abel likewise brings an offering of fat from the firstborn of his flock. All the vegans are like, that's disgusting. <laughs> Though it's not clear why, the Lord accepted Abel's offering, but he did not look with favor on Cain's offering. And this causes Cain to be dejected and downcast, and it fuels this hatred and this anger in him towards his brother, and it brings him to kill him. And the worst part about this story is that Cain himself, I hope you notice this, Cain himself wasn't rejected. It was the offering that the Lord didn't accept. And the story goes on with the Lord challenging Cain's angered response by saying, look, just continue to do what's right and you will be accepted. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project paraphrases the Lord's response more literally by saying, Cain, if you'll trust and obey, won't I exalt you as well? And so while there's certainly some questions and there's long-held debates over the whole story of Cain and Abel that we're not gonna go into today, there are some important themes that we can draw from it. Specifically, for our teaching this morning, we have to see that Cain's anger, brought on by something that didn't happen in his own life, but happened in the life of his brother, drove him to maliciously murder him. Understand that envy and jealousy and pride, conceit, all those things that we experience at times in regards to one another, is a misguided longing for love. It's looking for love in all the wrong places and in all the wrong ways. It believes that there's something being held back from us, that there's something better for us than God himself. And Cain just couldn't believe it, even when God said, won't I exalt you as well? And John argues that Cain's response was the response of the world. The world is driven by envy and jealousy and conceit. And when we are living as loved, content children of God, satisfied with what he does and doesn't do with our offerings, we create a counterculture that is hated. Look at verse 13. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. But it's, excuse me, do not be surprised by my brothers and sisters if the world hates you. So it's not only the opposition of the world that is against followers of Jesus that John's concerned with this morning. John is actually concerned that this same type of hatred and envy and jealousy is going to pollute our love with one another, resulting in us 
acting like hateful and murderous Cain. Jealousy and envy and pride destroy our love. They break down our unity and they dismantle our witness to the world. Like Cain, there's gonna be some who hate us for our righteousness and they are opposed to Jesus and so thus they are opposed to us. So don't miss this. This connection between the world hating us and our love for one another is so important. Our mutual love will be part of what sustains us and enables us to go the distance with one another in a world that opposes Jesus, his way, and his followers. John takes this even further, verse 15. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Scrolling Instagram, you're laying on your bed, looking at your phone right before you go to sleep, doing all the things we're told not to do. <laughs> Scrolling on Instagram and feeling your bones rot with envy may seem relatively harmless. It's not really affecting anyone, but it is polluting the eternal life that dwells within us. That pure and living water becomes to get mur it starts to get murky. To look with frustration and anger or even envy at what another person has is the beginning of death. So even if we're not physically going out and murdering someone, consider the ways that we act out jealousy and envy and pride. Small negative comments, those little comments that just get put in there where you're like, huh, kind of seemed rude towards that other person. Or withholding blessing knowing you could bless a person in a situation, but instead you hold it to yourself because you're like, I feel jealous of you. Feeling threatened, subtly excluding people, social gain at the expense of another, comparison, so on and so forth. These types of behaviors and actions and thoughts murder the very love that we are to be marked by. These seemingly small transgressions separate and tear down our love. Now, Jesus went to the guts of this in the gospel. He said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, sister Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Okay, this is sobering. And I do wanna ask this carefully. And I'm asking myself, I've asked myself this past week, how many times have I harbored anger in my heart toward another person? Now before we all crumble under the weight of that and under the weight of Jesus' challenge and that question, we need to understand first, I think it's important to, to note this, that those types of emotions and feelings are a natural byproduct of being a human made in the image of God that has been hurt. We do have feelings and emotions and God made us that way. <clears throat> in this life, we have all been sinned against and we have sinned against others in painful and excruciating ways. So it isn't the feeling that's wrong. It's the harboring of and the holding on to that's the issue. Now remember, Jesus doesn't call us murderers to condemn us. He is using intense language and rhetoric because he wants to catch our attention. He wants to draw us into him. 
He's getting to our hearts and he's doing it purposely. He wants us to take an honest look at what we quietly and secretly hold in us. You guys, he loves us too much to let us pretend and fake things and act like everything's okay when inside of our hearts we're secretly holding anger and murder within us. When the light shines and our sin is exposed, be comforted. Actually find that comforting, that sense of conviction, find that to be a comfort because this is the Spirit's grace and compassion meeting in us and working in us to move us to a place of releasing that anger, of releasing that jealousy, of releasing unforgiveness. And it's his call to us to step into love. Conviction then is not a demand for us to get get it right on our own. It's an invitation for us to partner with the Spirit as he empowers us to be right with him and with one another. Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And now verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Ongoing hatred, refusal to forgive, ongoing failure to love is a mark of remaining in death and not in life. But in contrast, Love is the defining mark of a transformed life, no longer living in death and darkness. We begin to do what Jesus did and what he has called us to. We seek the flourishing of another at cost to ourselves. So practically, what cultivates our love? If these types of things destroy our love, what, can, what kind of things will cultivate our love? What does a community of love look like? A community of love is forgiving A community of love is big-hearted, and a community of love is generous. When I was younger, my my mom had a dear friend, when I was around 10 or so, that was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer, and I was friends with her daughter. And everything in my memory about Carol was that she had this big, beautiful smile, and she was warm and kind-hearted. I actually learned how to make fried uh, donuts at her house, so, so great. But sadly, Carol faced immense relational hardship in her life. She had not one but two failed marriages, both of which she had children in. And as a result, she fought long and hard in multiple custody battles and for the financial support that she actually deserved from both of the men that she had separated from. Unfortunately, Carol didn't get the favored outcome from these legal fights that she desired or she deserved, and these setbacks and hurts began to take their toll on her. And even though Carol deserved help, and she should have had the financial support in both of these marriages, the anger and the hatred from these situations became a chokehold on her heart. She couldn't move past the ways that she had been wronged. She couldn't accept that the justice that she desperately deserved didn't come to fruition in the way that she wanted. And she took this hatred and this vitriol to her death. Her heart was cold and it robbed her of the beauty that was right in front of her with her kids. She died an angry and bitter woman. Ronald Rollheiser in his incredible book, Sacred Fire, I cannot recommend that book enough. It's just wrecked me the past month. Ronald Rollheiser speaks to the major task of forgiveness in this life. He says, We need to forgive those who have hurt us. We 
forgive ourselves for our own failings, forgive life for not being fully fair, and forgive God for seemingly being so indifferent to our wounds. We need to do that before we die because ultimately there is one moral imperative, not to die an angry, bitter person, but to die with a warm heart. In this life, we all, all of us, every person in this room have reasons for the conflicts that develop between us. And sometimes those reasons are legit. They're not petty. They're not like these small little things. They're big reasons. Yeah, but they didn't say this or they didn't acknowledge that or there wasn't a detailed account for every single thing they owe me an apology for. I get that. I get that kind of thinking. It's not easy to forgive and you need to be aware that almost every single thing in your being resists it. But understand this, unforgiveness paralyzes us. Unforgiveness cuts off our effectiveness as a whole. We don't look any different than the world around us when we're unforgiving. Our hearts become cold and deformed and shriveled, and for some, we take this to our death, never experiencing the unity and the love that we so long for. Now, just as an aside, have you ever considered that the very thing that you just can't let go of, the opposing party likely has? I've seen this and I've actually experienced it. They've moved on with their lives and I'm left paralyzed by unforgiveness. In my mom's friend's case, both of her ex-husbands had moved on. They've re they remarried, they had other children. Yet Carol spent the remainder of her days crippled by what happened. And at the risk of sounding right now like I'm calling you all to something that I haven't wrestled with myself, I have experienced very painful situations with those that I call family and those that I called close friends that have been excruciating. Some of the very people that I have experienced the greatest points of love with are the very ones who I've been hurt most deeply by. And a few of those situations made me wrestle with being small-hearted and it warped and it deformed my heart. Have you noticed that when we're hurt or wronged by someone, if we aren't careful, if we don't keep it in check, we begin to become suspicious of all people. How is this person gonna hurt me? Rather than entering a new friendship with acceptance and excitement, we're like, ooh, can I trust you? Rather than living out of love, we live out of fear. Rather than believing the best in others, we begin to assume and suspect and speculate the worst of them. Do you see? Our harbored hurt and anger deforms our hearts and actually separates us from one another because there is not one person in this world who can hold the weight of our demand for forgiveness and reconciliation in the way that we want it. Sometimes forgiveness and big heartedness is actually letting go of justice the way we wanna see it and arriving at forgiveness in a biblical sense. Jesus told his disciples 70 times seven. He said that so that we can experience peace internally with God and with one another. Living in a magnanimous, big-hearted way actually brings us close to the heart of God for this world. Rollheiser, again in his book, Sacred Fire, says when we act like God, we get to feel like God. When we do big-hearted things, we get to feel big-hearted. And when we do small-hearted things, we get to feel small. Like Jesus, 
we understand and we become acquainted with his suffering as we lay down our lives for each other. We begin to truly grasp the magnitude of his self-denial when he died for us. The very ones who maligned him, who wounded him and slandered him and rejected him. When we act like him, we get to experience his big-hearted ways in our own lives. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him, what, deny himself. The Apostle Paul said, in humility, consider yourself better, or consider others, excuse me, better than yourselves. And the Apostle Peter said, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And so, friends, the way of Christ is not self-actualization, but it's a self-emptying that leads to a fullness of life. And it is costly. It requires a big-heartedness and a choosing to overlook faults. It requires that we have a low view of ourselves and a high view of importance of others. It asks that we forgive over and over and over again, even when we think that person doesn't deserve it. It demands that we go the mile and we not quit. And it asks, just when we think we've given generously everything, we actually give more. So... Our call this morning is to practice that same big-hearted, forgiving, generous love with one another in our hearts, with our words, and with our actions. Verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Over the past months, our church has beautifully cultivated this kind of generous love. From the college student living off of Chick-fil-A to the established financially secure person, we have put together our money and resources and we've cared for our brothers and sisters in need among us. Friends, I just wanna say, from Dan and I, you guys are truly becoming such a generous and sacrificial community here in San Diego. It's so beautiful. You guys have paid rent You've provided groceries. You've taken meals to the sick. You've provided transportation to hospital visits. You've shared cars when someone else's is broken down. And you've done the things that could seem inconsequential, like you've dropped an encouraging note in the mail, or you've connected over coffee, or you delivered a sweet treat to someone who was grieving, or you even just prayed a prayer over each other here in the, at the Sunday gathering. These are always the big things and the small ways that we cultivate a generous type of love. By being generous with our money, our time, and our resources, we have loved one another practically. In chapter four of this same book in 1 John, he says, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love this brother, his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. The great saints of history, Christian history, have all talked about seeing the face of God in the poor or in the face of our neighbor or even our enemy. When we see each other, we are seeing the Christ in that person and they're learning to see Jesus in us. And until we see God in our brother and sister, we're not actually gonna fully see the God who has saved us. Our love for God and our love for one another go hand in hand. So in other words, how we love and respond to Jesus will be the ways in which we love and we respond to one another. Telling a friend, 
I'll pray for you is one thing, that's beautiful, but actually doing the work of prayer is another. Saying to someone in your community, hey, let's have coffee, requires that you actually follow up and you meet with that person. After washing his disciples' feet and serving them in the most humble way, Jesus said in John 13, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you, what? If you do them. You will be blessed if you do them. Generosity is making space for one another. It's helping each other in need, and it's providing, and it can't happen if it's not practiced. We have to do the things, and it is in the doing where so much blessing is found. Now, I just want us all to take a big, deep breath. I've talked about some tough subjects, and I don't know about you, but as I was meditating in this passage, I became acutely aware of the ways that I have failed to be a person of love. I have withheld forgiveness. I have murdered in the secrecy of my heart. I have been jealous of my brothers and sisters' offerings. I have been greedy and I withheld blessing from people. I haven't been generous. And I felt the condemnation of my faults. Yet listen to what John says to us this morning. Let this be a balm over you. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Verse 20, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command. Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. So I see three exhortations from verses 19 through 22. Rest, receive, and do. Verses 19 through 22 remind us that experiencing God's love and assurance is the source for our love for one another. As we rest in his presence by being with him, we experience an ease in which we can trust him. When our hearts condemn us, we can depend on God. He is greater than any situation, any failure we've endured, and any sin that we have committed against one another. So our confidence can be in him. You guys, we're gonna forever be plumbing the heights and the depths of Jesus's unconditional 70 times infinity forgiveness and mercy. And so we have to trust that reality and receive it. It is a choice, know that. It doesn't come easy. So we must practice believing and forming our minds around the objective reality that has been given to us in the scriptures. Like Dan said last week from the text, behold, look at, revel in, and meditate on the cross of Jesus as the centerpiece and the proof of his love for you and your sure adoption into this family as brothers and sisters. The cross is ground zero where we all start from to, in order to become a community of love. Jesus will bring about the justice and the correction, therefore we don't have to. We can have confidence in him. We can receive from him this immeasurable love and we can give that same love to others. So we rest, we receive, and out of that, out of that rest, out of that receiving of his love, we do. We do the stuff of loving community. John says, love one another, we have to do it. We can't just talk about love on Sunday mornings or read about it in our devotions or even long for it in our hearts. 
biblical love that builds a community of love is a choice and action that we make moment by moment, day by day, through the duration of our lives in every relational context in which God has placed us in. And the good news is we aren't alone in our pursuit to do this. He has given us his spirit to animate and empower us. And not only does he do this individually, but he animates and empowers us collectively. Look at verse 24. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. As I mentioned at the beginning of this teaching, our love for one another is an integral and vital part of kingdom mission. As we cultivate love and embody Jesus's kingdom way, we together usher in the power and work of God in our city. It's a means by which we experience the working and the outpouring of the spirit in our lives personally and corporately. By our love for each other, the glory of God is displayed and nothing, nothing can prevail against the unstoppable, ever-growing, loving community of Jesus, not even the gates of hell. Psalm 133 speaks to the power and anointing of God's people when they are unified. As Eugene Peterson says in his paraphrase, when God's people get along. <laughs> that Psalm reads, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there, there in that place of unity, the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. The imagery of the priestly anointing here is powerful. Aaron, the priest, was to represent God to the people and carry the people into God's presence as their representative. Torah, or the first five books of the Bible, give us detailed descriptions and instructions on how the priests, like Aaron, were to be anointed with oil for this purpose. And today, the church, each one of us, are anointed in that. We are anointed by the Spirit. We are a new kingdom of priests representing God to humanity and holding humanity in our hearts before God as we are unified. And don't miss this. Our unity and love with and for each other becomes the place of God's blessing. It is where his goodness and his power is poured out. Let's stand together and I just wanna read this over you. John 13, 34. A new command I give you to love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. I just want you guys to close your eyes and I want to speak these gospel truths, these realities over you. Jesus is our example. He commands us to love as he has loved us. Copy him. Model your life after his. Believing in Jesus and the work he has done on our behalf and learning to love each other is a lifelong journey, but remember that he absorbed all our failings and our wrongs. He took into his body the unforgiving, jealous, envious, hateful, murderous thoughts and behaviors that we have hidden in our hearts and acted upon, and his death 
has reconciled us with himself and with one another. This is the same kind of love he's calling us to, friends, for the sake of San Diego. A laying down of our life, radical love that costs us everything. Jesus, I just pray that these humans would know your love in such a way that it gives them the courage to love in the same way, to lay down their life in the same radical way. Things and situations in this life can be costly. And I pray that these dear friends would trust you. And I pray even now, Holy Spirit, I know that there are some in this room who are facing very painful situations with loved ones, with children, with spouses. And I pray that their hearts wouldn't condemn them, but that they would trust in you and they would receive from you. And where there are points of division, would you help us, Spirit, even to challenge our own personal narrative? Challenge our personal narrative around the situations that we're facing. And I pray that you would make us into a big-hearted, forgiving, generous community. That we would go the distance with one another. That we would give generously and give even more. That we would pour out our lives as living sacrifices. In Jesus' name, amen.